As we get closer to autonomy, one thing for certain is that cars are still going to need seats. And as a global leader of that product and more, Lear Corporation continues to prepare for that future. Its CEO joins the discussion on this edition of AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. You know, this automotive industry, you gotta be ready to play hardball. It's a really tough industry and it's hard to do well. But there is one company that seems to be doing extraordinarily well, the Lear Corporation. And we're joined today by Matt Simoncini, the president and CEO of Lear, and it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, John, I love being here. Also joining us today are Chester Dawson with the Wall Street Journal, and Joe White with Reuters. Great to have the both of you guys great here. Great to be here. Matt, let's jump right into it. You guys are reporting record earnings. You increased your guidance to the analyst community for the rest of the year. You're growing faster than the rest of the auto industry is. Everybody's got your, their eyes on what Lear's doing. From your vantage point, what are the key factors that are growing, dr uh, driving your growth? Well, first and foremost, John, I think it comes from the product capabilities, um, the ability to produce world-class product in the lowest cost manner. Um, I always believe team is important, and I'm so proud to think that Lear has the best team in the industry, and it drives a lot of the improvements that you're seeing in our performance, our top-line growth, our margin expansion. We've invested a lot in the business, as you know, through acquisition, but through also capital spending, and you're starting to see this all come together. Hmm. Matt, your business is still mostly seeding. Um, three quarters, yeah, yeah three quarters revenue of seeding. Basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you've invested a lot in, in the electrical architecture side of the business. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see the growth rates of those two pieces of, of the company over the next few years? I mean, would, I guess given all the talk about mm -hmm. connectivity and electrification and all that, it would seem like electrical would grow, electrical side would grow faster, but what's your view? Well, they're both going to grow faster than the industry overall um, for different reasons, but the electrical side I think has more opportunity to grow faster still. In the base electrical systems, what you're seeing is more content come into the vehicle, and that drives more circuits and more software. But then when you add things like connectivity and the penetration of connected car, the penetration of electric vehicles and high-powered, and then ultimately autonomous driving, that's going to change the way that the electrical systems work, and it all provides extreme upside for, um, for content. Seating, though, I think everything from content growth to market share gain, the seats are becoming um, more power, more intelligent, leather, and those kind of content um, ads will also increase the opportunity for that business to grow faster in the market overall. Although I think, obviously, electrical and electrical systems, um, the opportunity is far greater. I mean, do you see a point where you're 50-50? Is that... Um, not in the near term, but longer term, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, and the reason I say that is I think there will be consolidation opportunities in that segment. Um, our business is a great base to grow off of. And I think the balance sheet strength that Lear has and the cash generation that we have will allow us to invest in the business and, and, and participate in consolidation. So grow by acquisition, to some degree by acquisition in that space. Absolutely. Speaking of which, um, we've seen a trend starting with Delphi and Autolive more recently, um, and certainly it's something that Wall Street is, is hoping for more of, right. where you've got companies that are saying, you know what, we're gonna leave behind our um, metal bending business and we're gonna go head first into, headlong into the space and uh, where you're doing you know, all of the electrification, the, the Silicon Valley end of the story, right. where it's more software than hardware. Um, what is your view on that? Uh, is that something that, A, your company would ever 
consider and be, if not, why not? Well, um, each of those circumstances, I think, were slightly different. Um, if you look at the starting point was Johnson Controls and Audion. Audion obviously was in a different um, industry than Johnson Controls, which was in building controls. So that made sense to separate and maybe take advantage of multiples that are higher in the building controls business. With Delphi and Autoleave, they're separating a high-growth business from a business that maybe didn't grow as fast or that was stagnant. In those circumstances, I think for those two companies, it probably did make sense to separate it. For us, we think both businesses have opportunities to grow faster than the market, um, and both of them share an infrastructure, both um, from um, a human side, but also from a brick and mortar standpoint. And we think the opportunity to grow electrical is actually better underneath the Lear umbrella, if you will. Um, that being said, in this business, I've learned never to say never. Uh, we ultimately run the business for the, the sake of long-term value creation for our shareholders. We understand our fiduciary responsibilities to do that. And, you know, we would consider for the right positioning or right offer to, to, to take advantage of that. That being said, again, our position is we think the ability to grow our electrical business is better as part of Lear Corporation. And the interesting thing is we're seeing these two products come together. We have in seating what other seat makers don't have and are trying to get, which is the ability to make the seat intelligent. We have that with our electronics business. We can write the code to make the seat safer, to adjust your spine, to take your biometrics. All of these innovations are actually coming from our electrical business. And so we think we're in a new position to grow both businesses. And for us, splitting them right now doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The beauty of seats, too, is that electric cars need seats, autonomous cars need seats. So as the industry changes, people are still going to have to sit inside these cars. Right. But I'm wondering what's going on in that part of the business. And i got to read it because mm -hmm. this is so complicated. JCI sold off its interiors to the Chinese company, Yunfeng. Mm -hmm. JCI seating operations became adiant. Magna sold off its interiors to Grupo Antolin but kept the seating. And then you guys bought the seating from Grupo. What's right. all this shuffling all about happening? What's going on? Well, I, you know, ultimately, I think there needs to be continued consolidation to make the industry more efficient. Everybody's looking to kind of combine in a way that will provide the most efficient delivery of components to, to our customers. Um, for us, we believe we're in the right two product lines, and we want to grow those product lines. Interiors has been a, a struggle, I think, for everyone, and it's not... Uh, unreasonable to see them divest of businesses that they haven't been able to perform in in order to unlock the inherent value. For us, like the Grupo Antolin acquisition was a beautiful tuck-in in that not only did we get sales, we, we received some great technology in their seat business, and we can leverage our infrastructure and deliver it more efficient to our customers. So that acquisition made um, total sense for us. As far as the others, I, I, I do think sometimes the industry gets carried away with financial engineering. And ultimately, it makes it more risky for our customers. I believe the best way to run your business is to do what you're good at, consolidate what you're good at, and then deliver the product in the most efficient manner. Matt, I want to ask you a question about your customers. And, and there's kind of, it seems to be kind of a disconnect. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, there's a lot of talk about technology, a lot of talk about how technology is going to change more in the next five years than it has in the previous hundred and all of that sort of thing. On the other hand, 
in the real world, it seems like this, it, for certain types of products and certain types of customers, OEMs, um, they are actually not rushing to put a whole lot more cost in in, mm -hmm. in their uh, in their vehicles. I think you you, you put out some, uh, I think there were projections from a, a third party, but a 48 volt systems would be 10% right. in, in 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 the middle of the next decade, um, and the 12 volt systems that will still predominate. Right. And then you look at the cost, and you know, twelve volt systems are what fifty bucks, and, and forty eight volts are three hundred or more. Right. And it seems like some things don't change, and that when confronted with a technology bill like that, they they walk slow in 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 the world of car manufacturers. Now, do you, do you still see that, or do you see that starting to change for whatever reason? Be it you know concern about getting beaten by Tesla or any other any other reason? Well, the market is really segmented. And I think you're exactly right on the mid to low range vehicles. Um, very price sensitive, which is then can drives the amount of cost that you're going to put into the, to the car. So the 12 volt systems for vehicles like that, those platforms, A, B, C platforms, emerging market platforms, uh, is the right solution. When you start going up the spectrum to more um, luxury brands and higher contented vehicles, higher dollar vehicles, then the only solution in many cases is a 48-volt solution to deliver the type of performance and the type of um, features that are, are resident in those type of vehicles to sell, to compete. So it really depends on the sub-segments of, of the marketplace. The cars, no doubt, are more contented today than they've ever been. Um, our job as a supplier is to figure out a way to deliver more content at the same cost. And we can do that by early collaboration with the customers. I think the um, next generation, if you will, large GM SUVs, mm -hmm. which have Lear seats, are going to be fantastic. And we're able to deliver those seats um, at a price point that is consistent with prior generation with more content at the same amount of margin because we were in the early design phase of, of the vehicle. That's the role, I think, of a large tier one that's vertically integrated. And I think you'll see more and more of that. But the market really is a series of sub-segments. You're exactly right. On the lower-end vehicles and the entry-level vehicles, we're not going to be able to make 48-volt work in this generation. Eventually we will, but not now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. With the latest um, mm -hmm. technology you mentioned, I think biometrics earlier mm -hmm. and cars getting ever more connected, um, I'm wondering about the, the cybersecurity risk. And you know, maybe with a seat it's less critical than it is for steering or braking, but how uh, worried are you and how worried are the OEMs you're working with about some type of a gateway? Uh, maybe it's uh, a Wi-Fi or, or the seat memory or something that allows potentially a hacker to get in there. And what about the security and the privacy of biometric information? Right. At your level, what are you doing about that? Well, I never thought we'd be in the cybersecurity business, but we are. <laughs> We've opened an office specifically focused on cybersecurity for the product in Ann Arbor. We hired Dr. Andre Weimerskirch, which was an industry expert from the U University of Michigan, and he's established a team to do exactly this. because. Today, there's multiple points where you can gain access to the vehicle. and It's not just a connected gateway, which we are doing, by the way. We can provide over-the-air updates. For the first time in our life, we have people that are deliberately trying to make a product fail in the auto industry. And we're all aware of it, both as a Tier 1 and as the OEs. And we are working together uh, to provide safe solutions um, because the consumer wants a connected vehicle. The um, ease of updating your software as you pull into your driveway 
is, is, is fantastic for the consumer and they want that. We need to be able to provide that to them in a secure manner and we're working very hard to do that. In fact, we'll be launching with Audi later this year a connected gateway where you do exactly that. So instead of going to the dealer, which is costly and time consuming, we can do it in your garage. But it, it, it requires that we understand the cyber security nature of our products. That's our obligation. The car companies are laser focused on it and so are the major tier ones. And this is how the world is changing today. I mean, if, when I took over as CEO six years ago, if you'd have told me we had an office in Ann Arbor just dedicated to cybersecurity, I would have been as surprised as you guys are probably hearing that we have it now. Mm -hmm. So it is a key issue for the industry. Um, everybody's working on it collectively and, uh, and I think we will find solutions. And does, we are. does collectively mean that the industry is going to have a standard so that you're not all reinventing the wheel individually? Or is it better for everybody hopefully. to come up with a different hopefully. solution? No, hopefully we get a standard as an industry. But right now, the way it's working, when I say we are collaborating, we are collaborating with our customers. And each of them had their own slightly different philosophy on how to protect their vehicles. Um, but everybody knows that this is a major risk and everybody's handling it and working f towards it. And I think that as a tier one, we have an obligation to make sure that our products are protected. And it's been a major focus for Lear Corporation. So these concerns, I mean, the, the concern about the cybersecurity of vehicles has been around for a while. I think it was elevated by events like the Jeep hack, right. where these guys took control of a Jeep, right. um, and so on. But I'm wondering if, if, if the more recent events, the Equifax hack, the hack right. of the SEC, and on and on, um, are going to cause automakers to um, hit the pause button on things like pushing to over-the-air upgrade. Um, and it seems like security has been one of the reasons why over-the-air upgrade right. has been slow to come to the mainstream and legacy automakers. I'm just wondering your view on that. Well, it's absolutely been uh, the reason why it's been slow. We've had the ability to update software over-the-air for many years. I mean, look at your cell phone. It seems like every week I'm getting a notice, update your software, update your software. So the ability to do it is not new. The ability to do it in a cyberly secure, did I just make up a word, cyberly? I think you did. In a cybersecured right. we'll cyber manner mm -hmm. um, is the difficulty. And I think everybody is aware that we need to ensure that when we're doing it, that we don't open a door for, for corruption of the software. And that's what's taking time to see it hit the uh, showrooms, if you will. So yeah, everybody's aware of it and laser focused on it. Each car company has a slightly different philosophy on how they want to do it and when they're going to do it, but it, it is going to happen. Matt, I want to stand back a little bit and look at the overall industry. You're one of the leaders in it. Earlier this year, Merrill Lynch, John Murphy at Merrill Lynch, came out with a, his Car Wars report right. saying there is a tsunami of off-lease vehicles that are going to be hitting the market mm -hmm. for the next five years. In fact, he's predicting that in the 2020-2021 time frame, that the SAR is going to drop down to only 13 million, well, a little, uh, 13 million and change. Do you see that happening? And uh, do no, you guys worry about? Okay, why not? Yeah, we, well, we always worry about production volume, and we're always aware of um, the macros. The macros in the economy in North America, number one, are actually pretty good. When you look at employment levels, borrowing rates, um, housing starts, fuel costs. The macros are not bad, and when we came out of 09, um, John, we came out in a much more level uh, recovery, and as a percentage of GDP growth, the recovery was, I think, very, very steady as opposed to past recessions when we came out in a more V-shaped recovery. The other thing I think that John is missing 
is that this is a global market these days. It's not like the old days when it was North America and to a lesser extent Europe. This is a global marketplace. And for large players like Lear, um, we're a global player. Our business is more outside of North America than it is in North America. And so as these markets grow, that will offset any flattening, if you will, of the North American marketplace. We may see a plateau. You're seeing inventory levels on certain car lines um, grow. You're seeing a rotation to CUVs that we've talked about in the past. But I don't see a major pullback. I see maybe a flattening. And I think the industry overall will continue to grow. And large tier ones that have the capabilities like Lear Corporation will continue to grow faster than the industry. So I think John um, has his philosophy. We think he overreached a tad. You know, two years ago, John was calling for the industry to grow to 20, I think. He, you know, um, he, he, a lot of times the sell side analysts need to be compelling, and I think John needs to be compelling. So are you concerned about trade um, upsetting this apple cart? Um, you've got, as you say, you're a global company. You depend right. on uh, the, the ability to find the right cost footprint and bring things across borders. Um, Obviously, NAFTA is being renegotiated or possibly re being re renegotiated as we speak. Um, how big a risk is that? Let's just talk about NAFTA. How big a risk mm -hmm. is a NAFTA kind of upset to your business, and how do you how are you gaming that out? Well, I think it's a minor risk, if you will. And the reason I say that it's in everybody's best interest to find a workable solution, and we will adjust accordingly depending upon the rules of the road as they get put in place, right? Because everybody's going to be kind of in the same boat. With us, we have the balance sheet to adjust, and we have the capabilities in every automotive producing region in the world to adjust, so we can adjust our footprint, our manufacturing plan accordingly. I don't believe you're gonna see a wholesale change in it. I think you'll see some tweaking and some modifications of it, and there'll be other offsets. Um, if that came in, then you'll probably see some changes in the corporate tax rate, if you will, that will benefit Lear. Um, ultimately, I think everybody's aware of, including our president, that this is a world market, and that we need to be able to trade on a global basis, and um, the consumer ultimately benefits by the delivery of low-cost goods. So I, I think it's a risk, but not a big one, and I think there'll be other offsets that will make it all balance out in the end. Just going back to your macro view on, on the market going forward, uh, it's been striking that we've seen um, just in recent days and weeks uh, a lot of big-ticket commitments by particularly foreign automakers into beefing up their North American capacity, particularly here in the U.S. Right. At the same time, the big three are either treading water or talking about overcapacity or certainly, uh, you know, extending their uh, traditional summer breaks uh, longer to, for inventory adjustment mm -hmm. reasons. When, in terms of Lear's growth in the U.S. and North America going forward, are you putting more? Um, are, are you are you planning to grow more with these transplants uh, than with the big three, or how does that shake out? Do you think they're basically going to keep capacity where it is, and are you going to grow with the transplants? Well, we're growing with the transplants, and uh, our business overall is growing in North America. We're growing pretty much with everybody. Um, again, it, it, when we talk about the industry for a company like Lear, it's the car lines you're on. We are seeing a reduction on certain past cars that we're on, but we're seeing an offset with the growth in the CUVs. And so we're winning business, um, for instance, with Volvo that now is putting production capacity in. We have business with Hyundai, um, and, and they're winning, obviously, in the marketplace. Uh, we took over some business with Mercedes that's down south. But we've also grown our business with GM, Ford, and, and, and Chrysler, Fiat Chrysler. So um, it really, 
depends on the car lines. We are seeing a rotation again from past cars to CUVs. The truck segment and the large SUVs have remained strong. Um, we'd expect that to continue, and yeah, we are adding capacity in North America. Overall, net-net. Overall, net-net, we are adding capacity in North America. Matt, you're a guy who's from Detroit. You're heavily committed to the city. You've really done a lot of great things, invested in the city. Now you're uh, opening up a manufacturing center in Flint, Michigan. You said you you talked about how it's a great place to manufacture, but you also, in in your release, talked about the need to give back to the community. What's driving your philosophy? What do you think Lear should be doing? Well, it's a win-win. It's the ultimate win-win, right? And working with General Motors, we discussed the ability, the need, for instance, to expand capacity. That's a prime example of it. And where where should it go? Um, Flint provides outstanding um, shipping routes into the manufacturing facilities. We'll be making seats for General Motors there. Um, And it has a workforce that is very capable. And I think you put those combinations together with the Um, availability of land and manufacturing spots. Um, I think it was a win-win and it's the right thing to do from a community standpoint. So we're proud of what we're doing there. That effort was led by my president sitting, Ray Scott. That's his hometown. He grew up in Flint and uh, he felt very strongly we needed to do this and I agree and I'm very proud of it. Flint's been devastated by this water crisis. You know, probably everybody's homes are worth practically nothing because who's going to go move into that community? Was that some of what drove your thinking? Oh, absolutely. It was that. It was, you know, at one time almost as important to Detroit as related to auto manufacturing. In so many cases, I don't know how you separate Flint from Detroit. To me, they're synonymous. They're, you know, historic automotive producing towns that fell on hard times. And so to me, it's not a whole lot different than investing in Detroit. It's, it's part of the automotive community. And uh, I think this state and Detroit and Flint are great places to do business and great places to assemble and manufacture, not just for automotive. Of course, automotive, because we are history and our backdrop of automotive engineers and the companies that are clustered here. But they're great places to manufacture, period. The infrastructure is fantastic. The shipping routes are amazing. The availability of, of uh, an intelligent workforce is here and in Detroit. And I, I just think it's a great place to do business. Can I pick up on that? Because it's really interesting. Right. I mean, if, uh, let's, a few years ago, certainly 10 years ago, you know, the drive from the big auto companies, including GM, was, right. you know, we want the China price. You know, we want mm-hmm. low cost. Get yourselves offshore. We, we're not going to be able to do business with you. And you heard that from everybody in the business. Um, this is one example that you just cited, but do you see a broader tendency among the, uh, the automakers um, to say, no, no, we don't necessarily need you to go to China or someplace. We, you know, if you, we need you actually to be closer to the place where, that you're supplying. I mean, I, I hear that, right. that there's a more of a sense of we want the, supply, the supplier operation close to the plant that, it, that it's supplying, not right. far away, overseas, whatever. Well, I think it depends on the component. Certain components um, probably need to come in offshore because of the ability to ship it and the labor intensity of it. So each component has its own DNA. Seats and the assembly seats need to be close to the OEs because of the, um, the amount of inventory, the size of the seat, the inability to ship it long distances. I think those make sense, as do other components to ship, to ship in. Um, certain other components, like um, the seat cover, for instance, probably needs to be made in a lower cost location. To us, our assembly in China um, of the components 
is for the Asian market. In fact, in many cases, China is becoming a higher cost market to produce components in, and we're looking for areas to ship in. Vietnam, for instance, mm -hmm. or India, you know, are becoming locations that we will ship from into China. Um, but for us, I think making the seats and the seat components and the seat frames, which we do in Detroit, um, and now we're going to be assembling seats in, in Flint is the right decision. And I think for certain components, this is a great place to, to do. I don't know if the stance has changed. I, I, I do know that, you know, when you look at the domestic automakers, they understand their, their, um, their social responsibility, if you will, and they're very conscious of, of trying to do the right thing and balancing that with their cost constraint because, you know, they're selling a price-sensitive vehicle. And so they're trying to balance that equation. Um, but you've heard Ford talk about it. You've, GM's talked about it. Fiat Chrysler's talked about the need to manufacture um, in the States. And, and you're seeing it. You're seeing it. When you talk about the Detroit area or Southeast Michigan holding its own, um, you can't help but think about the, the push and pull between Silicon Valley right. and Detroit. Obviously, you know, Wall Street is rewarding the Teslas and the NVIDIAs of the world with huge right. market caps. And there seems to be a sense um, that you know, uh, there's a, a risk of commoditization and that you need to find a partner in Silicon Valley to succeed in this business long term. Uh, how true do you think that is? And, and where do you come down on things like the brain drain? I mean, do you think um, that that's going to be an issue for this area? Or um, do you think that, you know, 20 years from now, the industry will still pretty much be based and in Southeast Michigan? And we need a, a one minute answer. Okay. Quickly, because there's a lot of different things here. Um, I think there's going to be a convergence of tech and automotive. We need to find partners because the technology we need is out there. We don't need Silicon Valley to, in order to set up shop there. We need to bring the talent to Detroit because Detroit's driving the changes, and it's our industry. And the, the management of data that is owned and resident in automotive needs to be managed by automotive companies. And I think we can recruit to Detroit because it's a great place to live and the younger generation and the demographics we need need to be here. Is that a minute, John? <laughs> That's amazing. I think it was just about down to the second. But we're going to have to wrap it up. Look, there, there's so much more we could ask you here, but Matt Simoncini, we really appreciate your Thanks. time. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming on the show. I love being here, John. Great Thank you. you. And getting your viewpoint, not just on Lear, but the entire you, industry. Chester Dawson, Wall Street Journal, Joe White, Reuters, great having you guys on board for this Thank as you. well. Good to be here. Thank you for that. And of course, we got to thank all of you for having tuned in. <laughs>